Hello, everybody. Welcome to the December 15th, 2009 Film Photography Podcast. My name is Michael Rosso, and I'm here with Dwayne Polkew. Hello, everyone. And filmmaker Joe Kolbeck. Hi, good morning. It is, um, it's December. It is indeed December. Yes, everyone, it's holiday time around the world. Look at the snow outside, it's driving me crazy. People are going to be snapping pictures like crazy. <laughs> and that 75% Digital penetration is probably going to increase this holiday season as everyone continues to dump their film photography cameras and buy, go digital. Digital penetration generally increases in the holiday season. I do want everyone to know that this is not, and there are a few comments, this is not a digital versus film podcast. It's not. This is a love of film photography and love of photography podcast. It is a uh, very positive vibe, regardless of what you shoot even though we prefer you shoot film. Super positive. And I would also like to add that I'm not a photographer, so I have to ask, what is digital penetration? Is that literally just taking pictures? That was a double entendre, wasn't it? Well, super positive. Uh, well, that's the market share, that the consumer market share of when you say, you know, how many households is a Blu-ray DVD player in? How, what is the household penetration of digital cameras versus film cameras? And I believe, and I'm, you know, I, I read this in uh, Popular Photography three years ago, it was 45%, and in three years, it's jumped to 75%. Hmm. And 25% would be the film. That, that's that's correct. It's, it is a film that's versus photo, uh, digital percentage. Oh. There, there are a lot of threads on the internet talking about when, how long will film be available, and uh, will there be a time where there is no film. And as the digital penetration increases, um, I think that, that film photography will, unfortunately, become more of a niche hobby as you know all of your relatives start ditching their film cameras for you know a, a digital camera okay. i don't think film will ever go away though not in my lifetime no but this will i have in front of me a little olympus stylus mm -hmm. 80 and this is the type of camera that your uh, like parent would have you know 35 millimeter and it's easy to use it's uh autofocus and uh it has a digital zoom oh and uh, these will, in my opinion, these are going to start to disappear. If you go to eBay.com, you'll see a huge amount of these cameras available for like. <laughs> I bought this uh, used on eBay. I love it. It's great to just have it in your pocket. But this month, um, we are going to discuss uh, the PDN Photo Plus International Conference and Expo. We're not going to get into it this second. We're going to go to listener letters first. But Dwayne and I made a trip to New York City. A pilgrimage, if you will. Yes, to the Jacob Javits Center to experience the PDN Photo Plus Conference. My first. Dwayne's been there quite a few times. I've been there, I believe. Uh, it's been around for 20 years. I think I've gone 19 times. Really? That's pretty impressive. I used to work at it. We'll get into that later, though. I'm thrilled. I'm really, really stoked that so many people are digging the podcast because uh, Dwayne and I, and sometimes John Fidelli, but today Joe Colbeck. Joe. Filmmaker Joe. Joe owns a Canon AE-1, right, Joe? Yes, I do, yeah. They're digging the show, and quite a number of people have said, I listen to your podcast while I'm scanning film, which is perfect because... And I think we should do a podcast on film scanning. That Yes, that's think a Think of idea. the possibilities, wet, wet mounting versus dry mounting. Yes. Should you use digital ICE? Yes. How to scan large format negatives on a flatbed scanner? Yes. I mean, the, the possibilities are endless, so that's just uh, that's another option. Yes. 
I'd say the, the, the feedback to our first few podcasts has been positive. It's about the love for film photography. It's about having fun. It's about asking questions. It's about experiencing new things. And we're not going to talk about it this podcast, but I started shooting medium format. Oh, it's brand new for me. I know oh. nothing about it. I knew nothing about the film. So it is a brand new experience, and it's really a lot of fun. Well, now, what, what is medium format? Ah. Ah. Joe's going to get heckled. You're going to get heckled. I, I, I already it? stated I'm not a photographer. You know? uh, med- well, there are different what we call formats in photography, small, medium, and large. Essentially, small would be 35 millimeter and things smaller. Medium format would be roll film, okay. which is uh, a step up in size. It's just real estate, the size of the piece of film that's in the camera. And large format would be sheet film, sheets that are the sizes of 4 by 5 inches, 5 by 7 inches, all the way up to ultra-large format. Which you can actually buy a piece of film that's 20 by 24 inches a big sheet, and put it in a camera. So medium format is in between those two ends, and it's a roll of film, essentially, rather than a film that's in a little metal canister like 35mm. Okay, wow. Yeah. And the the name brands of cameras that feature that type of film are Hasselblad, which is, of course, famous as having gone to the moon, and uh, Mamiya... And Contact, which is no longer in business, and Pentax 6x7, which still is in business. And those are the major players. There's probably a couple out there that I met. Bronica was also a major player in it. And on the really low end is me. <laughs> I picked up a Shanghai Seagull. Oh, you did get a Shanghai Seagull. I did. It's known as a entry-level medium format camera. Okay. Also, I, I picked up on eBay, it's still in a box, a Yashica. A Yashica mat? A Yashica something. Really? Yes. So well, you haven't used it yet? No. Also known as the entry level. It's sort of like drugs, Joe. <laughs> okay. You start with marijuana, and then you work it out. Right. There is an entire <laughs> there there exists an entire movement Analogy. of people who simply create images using the seagull, and they they enlarge them and they display them in galleries, much like people who use the Diana. Right. Much like people who use the Holga. It also has a very loyal following of people. And it's, uh, what is it, like $25? What was it? Uh, it cost me $50. Oh. It's the Seagull so you coming. 4A-105. Wow. I love it. I love it. You know, if you're shooting at f3.5, you do get the, the uh, outside of the frame does get a little... Vignetting? Vignetting. But it's a really strange... It's a sort of a swirly vignetting. Really? It really I love it. So it isn't uh it doesn't go darker, it actually goes a little bit out of focus or the image degrades as you get to the edge of the frame. And then it gets swirly and blur, that kind of a thing? Yes. I shot an image of Erin Russ. I don't know if you know Erin. I saw pictures of her on your Flickr yes. and she's beautiful. And I shot her at <gasps> Yes I have. I shot her at dusk. At dusk. And I used a reflector on her face, or I might have strobed her. And the co- comments have been, people think like that I have a mat behind her or like a painting behind her because the seagull kind of did some kind of strange things to the – it vignetted. Very popular now, and we, we ran into these people at the Photo District News show, are lens babies. Do you know what those are? I do. They're little things you attach, for those of you who don't know. Uh, it looks like a, a lens with a little bellows in it, and it attaches to the front of your film camera or your digital SLR, and it does precisely, well not precisely, but sort of what uh, the less expensive lenses on the Seagull type cameras do in that it defocuses and it has flare and astigmatism and coma, and it gives sort of that edge of distortion that, that you're talking about that you like so much. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of funny, like those cameras which were always said, oh, you know, their lenses are crappy, and you know, here they are selling this little device to do exactly right. what those things do, although not precisely, but you know. 
An effect. An effect. Yeah. It's an effect. What goes around comes around. I think you could achieve some of those effects without those additions on your camera. Yes? Uh, probably, sure. And the funny thing is, too, people try to achieve them um, by buying Photoshop plugins and filters, you know. Right. And they'll, they'll oh, this, I bought the software. It's $125, and I'm taking my third week. You, know, you could have bought a camera for 25 and done the same thing, but, you know. Right. To each their own. Exactly. Not everything has to be virtual. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. I use very little Photoshop on my uh, pictures. The very of, little. The one of Aaron you did not? It's a beautiful photo. I scanned it, and I brought it into Photoshop to adjust the uh, exposure. You know, the, the um, what do you call it? The curves, so to speak. Right. But I didn't do anything else. What does Aaron do? Is she a film- She's a filmmaker, right? Aaron is um, not a filmmaker. Her boyfriend's a filmmaker. Oh. F- uh, William Hellfire. Oh, she's his... Well, that's, we're not going to get into personal stuff, but... Uh, well, they're dating. Oh, okay. Yes. Mail's in. We have a mailbag. Let's do, let's do what we're supposed to do, the mailbag. Now, first of all, thank you very much for anyone that posted in the Film Photography Podcast group on Flickr. You go to Flickr.com and you search Film Photography Podcast in the group section and you will find our group. And there are a lot of posts there. Uh, we did get some letters to our uh, email address, which is filmphotographypodcast at gmail.com. And uh, we got a letter from Marcel, who says, A big thank you for the podcast. Very humorous and very, very entertaining. Keep it up. Looking forward to December 15th. Yeah, That's quite the... welcome, Marcel. Yes. Is he from France? Um, it doesn't say. <laughs> well, it's a French name. Where he's from. But uh, th- thanks. I appreciate it. I mean, Merci. you know. Merci, Marcel. I don't know if, if we're going to be as funny today. With John isn't here. I know. John, yeah. Da, 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 da. Yeah. Well, you're Sorry. pretty funny, Joe. You're holding back. You're I, holding back. Come on. I, get... uh... Hey, Uncle Farts! I've looked everywhere, and I can't find my Shrek 2 boogie board. Well, then it's quite obvious to me that we got ourselves a mystery. Okay, do one voice for us. No, I'm not doing any voices right now. Okay. Okay. Looks like I'm gonna have to do some hardcore sleuthing. So much for that. Um, I feel like, I feel like too much pressure. Come on, jump uh, in. Okay. What would uh, Uncle Farts say if his kid gave him a digital camera? I, I don't know. What would Uncle Farts say? Name's Farts. Harold Farts. I'm a private dick. Get it? Uh, no. Where's Scooper's Boogie Boy? No one knows who that is. <laughs> Tom Chamberlain says, Tom, love the podcast. Keep it up. Thank you, Tom C. <laughs> I, you know, listen, I, I totally appreciate just dropping us a line really it feels good. It does course, feel good yeah. because you don't feel like you're working in a vacuum. Exactly. And it lets you know people are listening, yeah. Uh, Magus says, Magus. Magnus. Magus, where is your haggis? M-A-G-N-U-S. Magnus. I'm sorry, the Magnus. Oh, it's a Magus. <laughs> no. <laughs> he says, uh, I'm listening to episode two right now, checking out Kodachrome scans on Flickr and feel like I missed out on something wonderful. You have. It's a, oh, it's a shame. Kodachrome threw my, some text got cut off here. Kodachrome threw my Mamiya C330, but now I want to get a hold of some 35 millimeter. Well, I think what he's saying is that there is no more 120 Kodachrome. They, you can't get processing for it if you can find mm-hmm. the film. But you can still get 35 millimeter Kodachrome processing. He says I'm going to get a hold of some. He says I'm going to get a hold of some 35 millimeter Kodachrome and send it off to Dwayne's, not you, Dwayne, before the uh, date. 
The end date. And the date is, one more time? The end date is December 31st, 2010. So you only have a year. You have one year. Yeah, a year and a few days to uh, do do the Kodachrome. That's only 35 millimeter Kodachrome. It is not two and a quarter Kodachrome. Only 35 mil. You can get 35 millimeter Kodachrome processed. You get 110 Kodachrome processed, and you can get 126 Kodachrome processed. Crazy, huh? It's crazy. It's nuts. That's the last place on the face of the planet Earth that still does it, and you'll hear the Kodak rep talking about that very shortly. Yes. Thank you very much, <laughs> Magnus. Thank you, Magnus. Okay, wait. Next Keep letter. your cards and letters <laughs> coming. <laughs> Next letter. <laughs> no, wait, I'm sorry. Just going back. That's the only place that will pro- that processes here in the States, or that's the only place that processes 35? In the world. <laughs> really? <laughs> last, place in the, last place in the world to get Kodachrome processing is Dwayne's. And they got great haggis. <laughs> okay. Yeah, in the world. In the world. In the world. Really? Yes. Because uh, about 15 years ago, uh, Kodachrome used to be the standard of the industry in terms of uh, line per millimeter resolution and sharpness and and color saturation. And then Fujichrome upped the ante with their Fuji Velvia films, and it slowly but surely took over the Kodachrome market because you could get two-hour E6 processing uh, on, on Fujichrome film, whereas Kodachrome was something you had to send out and wait a day or two to get back. See what I'm saying? No, you sure, don't understand. What I'm sure. I wish people could see my eyes because they're just like swirling. Rolling into the back of his head. I've been, you could ask Joe, I've been unhinged on Kodachrome. Like a, like a, <coughs> like a madman out of a cage just screaming everyone, I'm shooting Kodachrome. <laughs> Kodachrome. Right? One of the finest photographers who ever yes. lived is a gentleman named Ernst Haas. <coughs> and he did sort of conceptual nature photography and he exclusively used Kodachrome 2. Oh, okay. 35mm. Now, Kodachrome 2 was morphed into just standard Kodachrome, and he was said to have bought literally thousands and thousands of 35mm rolls of Kodachrome 2 because he was displeased with the color palette of Kodachrome. And then he said, when that runs out, I'm leaving photography. Did he? Can you believe someone who's that dedicated to something that if their their film is discontinued, I don't know if he did or not, I think he's since passed away. Oh. But... um, Yes. Kodachrome. Uh, uh, if you want to see an example of truly exquisite Kodachrome photography, by Ernst Haas's book, The Creation. Very nice. I'm going to check it out. Nice. Uh, we got a letter from Daniel Nutt. As soon as like I said your name, these guys just went quiet, and you should have seen them. They're just like, <laughs> they're just dying to say something about your last name. Dan Nutt. <laughs> hey, Dan. Dan says... Uh, I just listened to your first podcast. I enjoyed it. And then he, you know, my printer cut off half the text. Well, he's a nut anyway. Oh, come on. I think that Daniel said that he's a Minolta guy. Because my response to him was that I'm a Canon user. And that John Fideli is our Minolta man, but he's not here today. SRT 101. Yeah. Dan Nutt. I don't think John knew the model the, the, the model of his camera, so I think he confused a few people. Well, the flagship in the 70s for Minolta was the SRT-101, I think in 102. I don't think, I don't think John had that. And they had these famous ads of this guy named Mayatani. He was the, uh, the designer, the Japanese designer. And uh, it was like, only from the mind of Minolta, the mind of Mayatani. They had this kind of you know, glam approach to marketing their cameras, but they were very – they always you – know, they took third seat to Nikon and Canon – 
but they made exquisite cameras. The Indeed. Maxim? Yes. It was a pioneering, pioneering camera. Well, how, how involved is John? I mean, does John still shoot film? John shoots on his Minolta. Oh, okay, I didn't know if like he just he just owned why he he still so he still shoots film. Yeah, he shoot, still shoots film. Uh, he has a Minolta with a fifty millimeter lens, no flash, and that's it. That's all he has. Oh, and he loves it. Loves it. Oh, nice. So Philip, he does, he does guerrilla photography without guerrilla. Philip J from Chicago writes, "You you asked why would young people shoot on film? Well, for me, a studying film student." I won't get to shoot on 35 millimeter until the last few. Oh, my text got cut off. <laughs> We're just not prepared today. We're just not. We'll try to piece the rest together. Um, then it goes to say, get as much experience dealing with format as I can. While many techniques differ between shooting motion picture and stills, a lot of text got cut off. So why not start at one frame and work my way up? Well, Philip J., I'm sorry that you're. Your email text got cut off from my printer. We only got half of what you wrote to us. But I think what he's saying is that uh, he's, a, he's a film student. <laughs> yes. And that uh, he's going to be shooting on 35-millimeter film, like, you know, in a few semesters. And? And? And, and he's <laughs> listening to our podcast. Well, we're very, very glad that he's a listener. Yes. Uh, I'm going to get crucified for saying this, but I think shooting film is a pain in the ass. <laughs> Uh, Dwayne's just waiting. Dwayne's just waiting. It's, it's, it's small, but I mean, I, I have, and it was, it, it, I just think it's a pain in the ass. Do you want the nipple rings now or later? <laughs> well, you shoot digital as well, right? I do, but I, I don't want to get in. We just said we're not going to get into a digital versus film argument, and here we are <laughs> here we at are. the very cusp of one. <laughs> but each of them have their own distinct uses and distinct qualities and distinct advantages and disadvantages. And to actually take a position that one versus the other is, for some reason, the way you should go is inappropriate. Well, I'm not saying one is necessarily better than the other. I'm just saying one is less of a pain in no, the ass. There's no such thing as a pain in the ass. All right. it's, it's only what do, you, what do you want to accomplish, and did you accomplish it effectively? That's it. Well, I mean, I, mean, it's, you know. I mean, I like the idea of being able to see my dailies, you know, that day. Dailies? Yeah. This is still photography. We don't call them dailies. <laughs> well, like I said, I'm not a photographer. What are you doing here? Joe's what, are you, what do you call him? <laughs> what am I doing here exactly? Joe's talking about. Uh, Joe's a great guy. We're just kidding. We're just Joe's kidding. talking about filmmaking. Dailies. Yeah, I'm talking about. Yeah, well, yeah. But I figured the two would sort of coincide. Yeah, but, but I guess in not. photography, there's a very, very technical word that's analogous to dailies. They're called pictures. Pick right. Yes. Just thought we'd throw that out there. You're right. Let's move on to the show. Absolutely. I found my Shrek 2 boogie board. He was sticking out of the toilet. Oh, yeah! I borrowed it because I needed it to unclog the john! Case closed! But listen, really, really fast. I think, and I discussed this in the past, Joe, that I think that 90% of the folks out there would agree. They want to take some pictures, go home, download them to the computer, get them up on the web, share them. Uh, But for me, I'm just enjoying film photography as as a hobby, as a craft. And we already had the discussion that if I were working uh, a job, if I were shooting stills for a company, that I would not be able to shoot film. They would, would you would not be able to. They would run me out of the building, literally. 
in a commercial environment yeah. for shooting photography, we live in a need it now yeah. environment. Yeah. Whereas people who shoot film, they're very craft oriented. There's a certain craft to picking a type of film, wondering what its characteristics are. You know, you're loading the film, you're processing the film, you're doing contact sheets, you're making wet, darker enlargements. So you're someone who's involved in the process of doing it and the pleasure that that process brings in addition to just looking at the results. Whereas where you're shooting digital, you're not going through that. You're not, you're not in that mindset. You're like, okay, I took the picture. Let's look at it. Is it working? Is it not working? So therein lies the difference. Okay. I can see that. And they're not called dailies. Well, th- thank you. The skin tones. I'm, I was specifically referring to to film, like you know, shooting movies. The skin tones I'm getting on the Kodachrome I'm shooting is unbelievable. Fantastic. I, I, I can't. I cannot get that on digital photography, Joe. As of right now, like it doesn't exist. I don't know if it exists on any other film stock. The Kodachrome has this sort of like almost like a brown hue. The reds and the browns are right. different. Exactly. There is uh, someone has once said there was a red color bias to Kodachrome 25, and. Uh, well, Paul Simon said the greens of summer, and he should have said the reds of skin tone, shouldn't he? Yes. So, Joe. You know the Kodachrome song, Paul Simon? No. Oh, you don't know the Kodachrome song, Paul of Simon? No, of course not. No. Paul, you know who Paul Simon is from Simon and Garfunkel? Yes. He did a song that was popular in the 1970s, before you were born, yes. that uh, it was called Kodachrome. Okay. If I took all the girls I knew when I was single, got them all together for one night, Kodachrome, that ring the bell? No. What are you into, goth, Danish, speed, death metal? So, Dwayne and I went to the PDN Photo Plus International Conference and Expo at the Jacob Javits Center at the end of October 2009. For those of you who don't know, the Photo District News, which is a trade publication for the photography industry in New York City, sponsors a massive, simply massive trade show. Well, it used to be massive. It's a little bit more scaled down these days. But it's a trade show conference in New York City at the Jacob Javits Center, which is a convention center on the West Side Highway in the city of New York. Been going on for about uh, 20 years or so. It isn't as big as Photokina, the big uh, three-day photo trade show in, uh, I believe it's Cologne in, uh, in Europe. But it's the biggest the United States has to offer, certainly. And uh, what it's basically designed to do is to – well, it, it, it's a place where – People go to see the new offerings for uh, film manufacturers, digital camera manufacturers, people such as Epson, Canon, Nikon, the major players. But the cool thing about this show is that when you go way, way, way in the back of the trade show floor, there are the smaller booths. Anybody who uh, who wants to spend the money can get a, uh, a booth for themselves. And I've seen some of the craziest products over the past 20 years that uh, – I, I once saw a guy there. He was trying to sell his uh, – Motor drive for a four by five inch view camera, and this guy—I mean, it was this—who wants to shoot shoot twenty sheets of film in five seconds? I don't know. But he was there one year, so right. every now and then you get sort of uh, esoteric, a little bit uh, off the wall, and unique people who are uh, who who offer things in the photographic industry for those who want to see. And what Mike and I did was go to the trade show. And walk around and try to find people who are still involved in one way, shape, or form in film photography. And we were fairly successful <clears throat> in getting them to do some interviews with us. That's what we did. We interviewed uh, – uh, you'll hear in, in a few short moments the people that we did interview. But I think we were fairly successful in getting them to talk about uh, 
things that, that were passionate to them and, and that had to do with film photography, which is, of course, our intent in going. And um, the reason why we did this is that you can get a feel for going to this trade show, what it's like to actually go up to someone who's a rep from a company, ask them a question, and these are the sort of responses that you would get. Because, I mean, you go to this show, it's overwhelmingly digital. You yes. know, it's overwhelmingly digital. I mean, you know, Nikon, Canon, Epson, which is great, but then you find this person, this little pocket of existence in the back of the trade show, and they're into film photography, and it was really wonderful to see that to begin with, and then to talk to them and actually have them go a little bit deeper into why they like film or how they feel about film or where they feel the future of film is going was just a joy for me. I mean, I didn't really even expect that. We'll start with the main media workshop. We spoke to Elizabeth Greenberg. Let's uh, let's take a listen. Okay. Uh, and kind of picture as you're listening, kind of put yourself, be there. That's the whole purpose of it. I mean, this is a packed place. It's the size of an aircraft hangar, you know? It's just, it's just, it's this massive, massively big show. And uh, we just walk up to people and go, hey, tell us about yourself. Here we go. Here's, Here we uh, go. Here's Elizabeth Greenberg from the Main Media Workshop. Good morning. How are you? We're interested in your workshops because you are very much actively involved in film photography. Uh, it's very difficult to find people here on the floor of the uh, PDN show that are very much interested in film photography. But would you tell us some of the things that your workshop does that our, uh, our listeners would be interested in? Certainly. I mean, we remain very dedicated to traditional darkroom practices. We offer everything from introductory darkroom and learn how to process your very first roll of film, make your first print. We have those courses for high school students as well. All the way up, intermediate classes to master printing classes with George Tice, Jim McGarkey, and many others. Now, you mentioned to me earlier that you did alternative processes. What sort of alternative process? Like, is it like uh, platinum printing or palladium printing? What sort of things? We offer courses in all alternative processes. Christopher James, who wrote the, the book of alternative processes, teaches two weeks with us each summer. Jill Enfield also teaches a collodion process. And we have additional workshops in, uh, you know, you name it, platinum printing. We, Dan Burkholder teaches a course in platinum palladium from Digital Negs. Uh, we really like to, you know, combine uh, digital technologies with traditional practice. So you, uh, you also have your own darkroom there. But how many students can you handle in your darkroom? We can handle up to 60 students in the darkroom at one time. We have two separate facilities um, that will accommodate both silver printing as well as alternative process. And what are the formats that most of your students like to use? Well, most of our students are still shooting 35 or medium format. Some 4x5. U-camera is a very big class, very big process, especially to get those larger negs for alternative process. And we even have a few students who will shoot 8x10 or banquet size. Now, you used to be your main media workshops now, and you used to be the main photographic workshops? That's correct. We changed ownership three years ago, and with that came the name change to Maine Media Workshops and Maine Media College. And where are you located in Maine? We're in Rockport, Maine, about halfway up the coast, an uh, hour and a half north of Portland. And if someone is interested in contacting you or someone is interested in taking some of your workshops, where do they go? Who do they talk to? They should go to www.mainmedia.edu, and they'll find all of our program information for both the workshops and Maine Media College. And that was Elizabeth taking one for the team for Main Media Works. So thank you so much, Elizabeth. Thank you, Dwayne. Great. We say taking one for the team because she didn't. She initially did not want to be interviewed, but she was very nice and very cooperative. And she mentioned George Tice, who's a fine art photographer who actually lives in New Jersey. Is that right? Yes, he is. He's one of the most famous fine mm -hmm. art photographers out there, and he's from Islin, I believe. I think that um, you know we, we talk a lot about DIY, you know, going on eBay, buying a film camera, doing uh, home negative processing, 
But uh, we failed to mention in the past that there are workshops where you can go and really learn the craft from from professionals. And um, the main media workshop certainly is uh, an option. Now, why don't you start a workshop? Oh. <laughs> you got the studio here. You got Dwayne. <laughs> you could teach people like me that you guys don't call pictures dailies. Well, if we started a workshop, it certainly would be a very basic, which, you know, there are certainly a lot of people who, you know, do not know the uh, relationship between a shutter speed and a f-stop, uh, how to load a film camera. Um, so I think that we actually could have a workshop here, and it would be a lot of fun. It would be like a basic. We're certainly not masters. I think you're best served going to a main media workshop. but uh, Because a workshop like main media workshop that's been around for a long, long time, they basically have access to a lot of people that have been in the in the art photography business for a long time. They've published books. They're very well-known in the gallery circuit. Like George Tice is, is really almost legendary, I would say. You know, you have access to someone like that working on them one-on-one -on -one for a week. And I know like Maine, it seems like, well, that's really far away. But the, the, the principle of having it there is I think that you are sort of isolated and, and as such, you can just devote so much of your energy to working with a master photographer, a master printmaker, one-on-one -on -one for that period of time without distraction. I like to direct people. For example, uh, if you bought a Canon AE-1 and you're like – and you and sometimes you buy a camera, and a used camera, and you, you don't get an instruction manual. I like to direct people, push them to go to Google to type in Canon AE-1 manual because many times a manual that no longer exists is available on the web as a PDF or – Sometimes on YouTube, you'll find a tutorial, a homemade tutorial of someone who just shows you how to load a camera. And those things are, are, are priceless. When I started uh, jamming 35mm film into 126 cartridges, I would not have done that if I did not go to YouTube and see an instructional video of exactly how to bust open those, those plastic cartridges and how to sort of jimmy rig, uh, you know, a 126 cartridge to handle 35mm uh, film. So... Jimmy rig? Yeah, that's a name. that's a word, right? Was Jerry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A Jerry, Jerry rig? The Jerry rig? No, I've heard, I've heard Jimmy rig too. Yeah, that's one of the rig brothers. Yeah, the rig brothers. <laughs> yeah. So our next interview, uh, and I think that um, I see many, 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 many threads on the web asking about Kodak film, discontinued Kodak films, and namely, will Kodachrome be coming back anytime soon? We spoke to Scott D. Sabato. He's the uh, market manager of professional film at Eastman Kodak. I thought Scott was awesome because he'd been talking for three days straight. Yes. In a literally in a very, very noisy environment. He was adjacent to uh, a booth where they had – Oh, screaming. Screaming. Ample I mean people had microphones and, and a, a PA system and they were doing demos. It's like, when we're shooting wedding <laughs> photography, <laughs> remember F-16. And this guy from Kodak was just, hey, let's just do the interview. He, so Scott, if you hear this, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate so much the fact that in this crazy economy, Kodak even still comes out with an upgraded T-Max 400. Some of their portrait film is the best that you can get. So Scott was very, very kind in speaking with us for a few minutes. I certainly appreciate it. I think Mike does too. And uh, anything else you'd like to say about Scott before we listen to the interview? Let's, let's hear Scott Let's talk. hear it. We are at the Kodak booth, and we are speaking with Mr. Scott DiSabato, who is the marketing manager for Kodak. Yeah. He's the marketing manager for Professionals Film. Hello, Scott. Hi, Dwayne. And uh, let's ask you, first of all, some questions about the uh, black and white film that was introduced a couple of years ago. This is T-Max 400? Yeah, the T-Max 400 was uh, completely rebuilt in 2007. 
the film really had major improvements in the grain structure. If we go back to 1986 when the T-Max films were initially created, uh, we have a lot of great technology that we were able to incorporate over those years, uh, especially in the high speed end of things. So. What we've really done is, if you had the T-Max 400 uh, and the T-Max 100 from the first generation, we basically created a 400 sensitivity film with a grain structure that's actually between those two. So almost like a 200 speed would have been back when we created that film. So, And it's, it's gone very, very well. Uh, a lot of people that... Uh, were T-Max uh, 400 users are uh, adopted to the film with, with really no hiccup. They love the film. Uh, and what surprised us the most, a lot of people that didn't like the first generation of T-Max 400 have tried this film, and it's really clicking with them. They really are able to get uh, uh, fantastic results from it and take advantage of the great image structure and tonal range that the T-Max films uh, provide. What are the recommended developers with it? I know you guys have XTOL. Of course, there's still HC110, there's still D76 that you make, and uh, what would be the characteristics that those developers offer that you would recommend with them? Yeah, there's certainly trade-offs with, with each of those. Uh, good old HC110 uh, is uh, reliable, uh, but it doesn't always uh, produce the, the finest grain structure uh, for a film. So the Xtol film is, has been fantastic, and I think it's a great compromise between getting the best uh, image structure and being able to uh, get uh, the most speed out of that film. So that's pretty fantastic. When it comes to the best tonal range, uh, the T-Max developers uh, are really the, the best product to take advantage of that. And then we have good old D76, uh, which... Uh, it works very well and is really a beautiful developer with that film as well. So different different choices out there uh, depending on really what you're looking for. And as we all know, the Kodak uh, recommendations are typically starting points for people that go off and do amazing things with our films. Now, if you go on large format websites like LFinfo.com, uh, a lot of people who shoot 4x5, 8x10 really are interested in the new T-Max 400. Now, now what... How is it marketed in terms of packaging, meaning how many sheets per box? Well, we, we have um, uh, 10 sheets and 50 sheets typically for, uh, for our black and white. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, interest in trying to maybe get that to 25, so that's something that we're, we're looking at right now. Um, and the great thing about large format, when we introduce the new T-Max film, uh, our manufacturing folks desperately wanted to put UV inhibitors in there. It just really helps with the manufacturing process. Uh, it reduces uh, a lot of variability, um, but we made sure with the, the sheet product that we didn't incorporate that into this product uh, against their uh, desires uh, because of uh, alternative process, uh, contact printing uh, with UV light sources, uh, platinum printing, those sort of things. So. Um, that's a great feature that's built into that film that uh, we were able to make sure uh, didn't go the wrong way. When people pre-soak their film, sometimes with films with anti-halation dye, you see that the funky color that people are concerned with, oh my God, is the emulsion washing off. Now with this UV inhibitor, will they see something similar to that, or should they just not be concerned if they see a color when they remove the pre-soak? 
I wouldn't be concerned. Uh, again, it's going to have uh, similar characteristics to the first version of this film. Uh, so, yeah, as long as you're getting reliable results with, with that uh, practice, I'd stick with it. Um, you know, and, and the T-Max films have always been very different from the more traditional cubicle silver halide films that we have. Uh, the tabular grain, the tea grain, has to exist in a sensitizing dye. And that gives it the kind of pinkish purple hue that sometimes you see in the base. Doesn't affect print times, uh, but yeah, it sure uh, sure weirded people out the first time they ever saw that. But uh, it's fine, and a lot of times if it's not uh, washed or fixed uh, thoroughly enough, you'll see that. But uh, exposure to light um, and just working with it will it'll dissipate over time. Let's talk for a moment about the color films. You mentioned to me earlier that you have a new Ektar film that you're introducing. Yeah, we uh, a year ago introduced uh, Ektar 100 film, and it, it's got a great claim. It is the finest grain color film made. Uh, we were, uh, well, I don't know about ever, but currently. Uh, and, and the great news is, uh, yeah, because we were able in the past to make slower speed films, like our Ektar 25, couple generations ago. Uh, this matches that image structure at a speed of 100. So we've really been able to do some great things uh, with grain to speed ratio and technology like that over the, the past uh, many years. This is a great film. Uh, it has high color saturation, but moderate contrast. So if you're scanning your film, we're trying to uh, contain uh, uh, you know, a, a very contrasty scene. This can knock it down a little bit and give you access to a lot of good tonality and a lot of good information. Uh, the image structure on this, uh, it's technology we borrowed from our, our, our vision films in the motion picture side. And uh, so this is a neat blend of both uh, tea grain and traditional cubicle silver halide which uh, is great to have in the emulsion because uh, it reduces the scattering of light and can improve the film sharpness. Uh, great film. Uh, it really complements our portrait line of films, which uh, are fantastic in terms of their flexibility and latitude. They're great, of course, for skin tones, as the name would suggest. And this film sort of just departs from there and gives you some crazy color uh, and some really, really incredible image structure. So we introduced it a year ago on 35mm. No plans to introduce it in any other uh, format, uh, but the outcry was immediate. Hey, we need this in, in uh, medium format. So we really took a look at, at, at that business case, and we introduced last spring the film in medium format. So what a great, great value. Uh, um, in terms of quality uh, to be able to shoot medium format with a film like this and, and frankly we're, we're now we're getting that same kind of level of interest in, in larger format so we'll probably have to go back and, and scratch our heads and, and see what You're not going to make this a sheet film are you? Uh, right now, uh, there are no plans but we are absolutely looking at, uh, at how big of a market that might be. How about uh, slide films? What's in your stable? Or you might yeah, slide films. We still have uh, uh, some older films uh, uh, that are available, like like EPP. Uh, but again, the popularity of chrome films, uh, the ability to get them processed, has really been quite a challenge. But we have a great family of, of E family films, which are a little more modern, with incorporating the T grain once again. Uh, E100G is a fantastic film. It's about 110 percent of reality in terms of its saturation. Nice contrast level makes it usable for you know, a, a wide range of uh, photography, 
from fashion to portraiture to uh, scenics. Then we have our E100VS, which is actually our sharpest film, uh, and it has very high color in about 129% of reality, so it really pumps up the color. You'll find that the films are still fairly neutral, uh, but we really uh, enhance the hue and the color saturation through our technologies. When you're speaking of percentage of reality, for those of you who don't know what that means, what are you referring to? Well, I'm, I'm trying to describe the saturation in, in, in a meaningful way. So 100% of reality uh, would, would be, um, you know, the way your eye sees it. And uh, the, the reality is uh, today, the, a normal is about 110% of reality. We expect a little bit of juice there colors to pop a little bit more, uh, and so we've got a great array of uh, products. We also have our E200 film. It's a 200-speed film that is actually somewhat flat when you process it normal, but it was really designed to be pushed one, two, and three stops. So you get that benefit of the slower speed of film grain uh, and the benefit of the speed having pushed it. Mike, would you like to ask any questions about Kodachrome? Any, any chance uh, the Kodachrome name will be resurrected in a different formula sometime in the future? You know, it, it's really, really hard to say. Uh, uh, Kodachrome was very special. Uh, it, it meant a lot of things to the photographers that use it. So I really doubt that we would, we would utilize it in that way. It uh, really deserves the respect after being in the market for 74 years. And, and, and interestingly enough, name a piece of technology, not, not a consumer brand, uh, something you use, but a piece of technology that was pretty much as relevant now as it was when it was introduced 74 years ago. So it's really been a superb product. Um, its archival capabilities were way ahead of its time, and it's just fantastic to go back into history when you're used to seeing the black and white imagery, and then occasionally uh, you, you'll see a Kodachrome image, and, and you see that in color, rich color, color that has not uh, really uh, faded to a high degree. Um, so I, I doubt it, but uh, boy, anything's possible, I guess. But uh, So we're, we're excited. Uh, we last month ship the last of the film that we produce. Um, we know there are many, many, many freezers out there, so just a tip to everybody out there that uh, Dwayne's photo, the last remaining uh, lab in the world processing it, uh, will um, continue to process the film through December of 2010. So it's not like a black and white film you can hoard in your freezer and, and you know, feel giddy and as you go to sleep at night. You really do have to make sure that you're out there shooting over the next 12 months and, and getting it processed so that uh, you can uh, celebrate uh, Kodachrome. Scott, thank you so much for your time and thanks for your commitment to film. I know I appreciate it and our listeners appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. That was awesome. That was awesome. And I can tell you that photographers <clears throat> around the world have unlocked their freezers and they have literally bricks and bricks of Kodachrome film that they're putting up on eBay. And Kodachrome has not lost its value. As a matter of fact, your $16 roll of Kodachrome film is now retailing for in the area of $22 per really? roll. Yeah, because there is uh, clearly a you know a small but very uh, feverish demand for the film now that it's not available in the store. It's only available on your eBay type sites, Craigslist, eBay, which is where I've been purchasing Kodachrome 25. Have you, uh, of course, you've been sending your, your Kodachrome film to Dwayne's? I have. What is the turnaround time for that? 10 days. Oh, that's not bad. Yeah, sometimes quicker. No longer than 10 days. And do you mount your film in cardboard slide mounts? 
they mount it in the cardboard slide mounts, uh, send it to me, and then I use my Epson V700 to scan the film. How do you like – so you don't have a dedicated film scanner per se. You're using the flatbed. Yes. How do you like the quality with that? Uh, it's very good. I scan it at 3200 DPI at the you know actual size. Mm-hmm. And um, that's it's perfect. I could, what scanning software is it? ViewScan. It's uh, the Epson software that comes with the scanner. Oh, do you uh, use sharpening? You when can you shut it off, or you could pick low, medium, or high. I, oh, you do have a choice with that. I have an older Epson flat, but it doesn't give you a choice. I choose low. Oh, you should. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Scott. Yeah. You hear from his voice, he was a little bit uh, hoarse. Hoarse from talking so much. Yeah. Over the uh, the racket, but uh, as I've, I've said before, so many people. They, you know, it's popular to bash Kodak, and I don't see the point of it. I mean, they still make film. They still make it. I'm not aware of any Kodak bashing. Well, I'm more into large format photography, okay. and uh, maybe my my view of, of the public's opinion of them is distorted, and I certainly don't mean to. Uh, is it because other companies have, have are pushing heavier with marketing campaigns? Well, Kodak, they they dropped uh, a lot of a lot of their materials very abruptly. Uh, they dropped. A lot of their printing paper, their wet darkroom printing paper, such as a Kodak Elite Fine Art, Kodak Polymax, fiber-based enlarging paper, and that annoyed a lot of people. They drop a lot of their chemistry. Um, I think like things like developer replenisher and things such as that. I mean, if you if you dig deep on the internet, you can certainly find a lot of the things that they've dis- discontinued. And uh, Ilford has not. In other words, Ilford still makes uh, multi-grade enlarging paper. So you get into this. Kodak versus, you know, Ilford argument. A lot of people who, who shoot large format, they're really entrenched in a in a certain methodology of working and a certain brand of materials, and I guess they felt betrayed. And uh, I read a lot of negativity towards Kodak, but you know, we live in a world where it's it's difficult to make a profit making film, selling film, right? Marketing film, and they still make it. It's right. just they, their 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 choices are certainly narrowed. You know, he was very enthusiastic and very knowledgeable, and I appreciate that. And I buy Triax. I think Triax is the greatest film ever made for black and white, ever, on the face of the planet Earth. So, you know, there's my opinion. I said it. Thank you, Dwayne. Uh, Joe, do you have an opinion? Nope. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> we stopped by the Lomographic Society USA booth. Lomo, bro. It's Yeah, it's Lomography. And you have to understand, too, you're in this trade show, and it's very high-tech. You know, it's yes. very like, like Epson printers and Epson logos and Nikon logos and Canon and Imicon. And all of a sudden there's like Lomo, man, pictures everywhere. They had little pictures everywhere. It was so cool, so cool. The colors like, are all distorted. Colors are all distorted. They, they had photographs on the floor yes, of they their did. booth. They had, the whole place was wallpapered with photographs and all of their uh, their Lomography cameras. And it was such a, such a, a contrast to the high-tech environment. So like I said, you walk in the back of the trade show and it's a whole different vibe, you know? I'm looking up on the computer right now. I thought any moment Margaritaville would play and Jimmy Buffett would come out. And his... How do you feel about Lomography? Me personally? Yeah. Well, it's a, it's, it's a niche um, that can be described as a genre or a hobby. For some people, it's an obsession. And Lomography, and the woman we've interviewed will explain it far better than I can because it isn't really something that I'm into. But it's basically you're using uh, what are considered uh, plastic or toy cameras to photograph snapshots on, uh, of your day in, day out life. Is that, is that a fair description? 
Yes, there are simple rules with Lomography, 10 rules, and they are simply this. I don't know them by heart. I pulled them up on the Internet. And uh, we're going to be talking to, or we spoke to Laura Nealon from uh, the Lomography Society. She didn't know the rules. Laura, that's cool. We she understand. knew them? She knew a few of them. Well, they are, Joe. Take your camera everywhere you go. Two, use it anytime, day and night. Three, Lomography is not an interference in your life, but part of it. Four, try the shot. Try the shot from the hip. Five, approach objects of your lomophotic desires as close as possible. I don't understand that one too much. Six, don't think. Seven, be fast. Eight, you don't have to know beforehand what you've captured on film. Nine, afterwards either. Ten, don't worry about the rules. Just get out there and shoot for God's sake. It's really a movement to to grab your camera and just shoot. But now, do, do the does it have to be shot with expired film, and do you have to use? I know a lot of them use that. I don't know the name of it, but it's like a plastic camera. Yes. And the film and camera must have been soaked, <laughs> soaked in some solution, some kerosene. No, the expired. Well, the official cameras are the Diana. And the Holga camera, that's right. the cameras that, you know, mostly associated with, but it can be any plastic camera, you know, like I have that little Vivitar slim and wide, that's considered a Lomo camera. The film does not have to be expired, but by using expired film and by using uh, the um, that red film, which mm-hmm. is the inverted film, it's giving you a different look. So the expired film is giving you a color shift. You saw a lot of photos in their booth were like green, greenish. Towards greenish. They were beautiful, actually. Yeah. The thing with Lomography and people who enjoy it is that if you are a medium and large format photographer, so many people are just involved in controlling every single aspect of their photography using the zone system. So many people actually, they, they measure densities of different exposures on a densitometer and they plot curves so they know the precise density so that when they go into the darkroom they can use a precise grade of paper to match that density and they're just very control freakish and lamography is the 180 degree turn away from that yes so it's sort of like you know what i don't i don't want to be that precise i don't want to be a control freak i just want to go shoot and have fun and so uh, w- when you go into that booth and saw those photos, that's exactly what I saw. Just the people were just, you know, they're ha- they were having fun. It was a party atmosphere, if you will. I think it was. It was festive. I will say that when I shoot, uh, for example, when I cross-process, shoot slide film and get it developed in C41. C41. Do you mind if I ask him a question really fast? No, go ahead. Okay, just because you brought up Tri-X film. When I was in school, I had the option of shooting Tri-X and Plus-X. And uh, I shot Tri-X black and white 16 millimeter reversal film and I always had the option to shoot plus X but I never did what is the difference between tri-x and plus X film speed the speed okay so I would shoot cross process which is which is getting your film developed in the wrong chemistry and when I get the slides if the transparency is back and they're green c41 I have difficulty because the instant my instinct is to color correct them mm-hmm. so that they look normal. So, you know, Lomography is sort of, it's, it's, for me, me being old, er, than most of the young punks out there shooting. Ish. Uh, it's having fun and doing crazy things. Not and caring. And, and, if it's and enjoying it. Yes, it's about the enjoyment. Let's, uh, so Dwayne and I walked into the uh, Lomo booth, and uh, uh, like you said, it was just fun. Fun. 
You know, let's. Uh, and it wasn't hardcore selling either. Most of these booths, you have to buy. The, you have to buy this scanner. You gotta buy. You gotta buy this. You're, you're not a photographer unless you buy this printer, right? It wasn't like that. It was just, <laughs> you know, it was like, hey, this is what we do. This is what we offer. These are some of our products, and you know, it was very, very picture oriented rather than than sales oriented. And I enjoyed that. I enjoyed yes. talking to them. They were very cool. Let's talk. Let's see what Laura had to say right now. I'm with Laura Nelson from. The Lomographic Society, is that correct? Yes, uh, Laura Nealon, but okay. Lomography. For those who don't know what Lomography is, what is it in a nutshell? Uh, well, we're an international society. We're an organization. We're about promoting creative analog snapshot photography, specifically. Uh, everything is film. Everything's analog-based. All of our cameras are either vintage reproductions or plastic special effects cameras. Um, everything is completely reusable, and we also offer like free online ho photo hosting. We have for a very long time. Uh, we do online competitions. We publish books that are all member-based, meaning like we don't give you pictures that you see, but we ask our community to submit them, and then we publish them. Um, we produced uh, six books, I think, to date. Um, uh, and we also manufacture cameras. We do installations with museums, galleries. We work with artists. We're again, we're all about promoting creative analog snapshot photography. That's great. Um, is it true that there are rules of lomography? Yeah, we, have ten, uh, we, we function on ten golden rules that kind of function uh, similar to a mission statement, I guess. So do, like, do you know them? I have one is take your camera everywhere you go. I think two is don't think, just shoot. Uh, three, uh, lomography is not an interference in your life, but a part of it. Um, get up as close as possible. We really want you to like get into your subject matter. Um, really, most of it is founded on the whole like don't think, just shoot. Like you don't know what you're gonna get. Like going back to photography being a process and not just you know like this instant gratification. Like it's something where you take an image, you expose film to light, you don't know what you're going to get, you get your film dropped off, you pick it up, you've waited your week, you're like chewing your nails, you get your prints back and you're like pleasantly surprised, you know, with what's in front of you. From the hip. Yes, shooting from the hip. Oh, yes. Oh, and the last rule I know for a fact is don't worry about the rules. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's, that's a very good rule. There are specific formats of film that uh, Lomography promotes. Uh, well, we've been a big proponent of medium format photography for a long time. Um, I think our best camera launch to date, um, aside from the original Lomo LCA, of course, is the Diana Plus, which is a vintage production of the 1960s Diana camera, which is medium format. The medium format camera, that, whereas now we've, we've made it so that the lens comes off, it's We've created the world's first plastic barrel mount lens system, so we have four different lenses that work with the Diana. So the lens comes off and it converts to a pinhole, so you can go from shooting plastic to shooting pinhole on one roll of film. Also, what's nice about the Diana, a um, little bit different from the Holga, like if you want to make a Holga do something else, you essentially have to break or take apart or physically change the camera, and sometimes it's permanent. So to like make a Holga a pinhole, or a pinholga, um, you've permanently changed your camera, whereas with the Diana, the lens comes off, it is a pinhole, the lens goes back on, so we have four lenses that work with it. Also, we're huge fans of um, instant photography and Polaroid, we were very sad to see them go. It's kind of a black band day at the office when Polaroid folded. So um, we, uh, we actually made a Fuji Instant back that works with Fuji Instax Minifilm that works on the Diana. We also have a 35mm back for the Diana, so we created the Diana as a medium format camera that's a box that lets light in that's so adaptable you can kind of do a lot of different things with it the lens is really really dreamy you get these like unbelievable effects you still get the vignetting at the edges and you can now put like a fisheye lens on it and like, take really creative do you promote 110 photography at all we 
like 110, we just have a hard time getting it processed ourselves, so we haven't really like leaned in the direction of 110 film because it is very hard to, to work with. We do carry like the smiley cam on our online site, but as far as like cameras we manufacture, no, we haven't gone in the 110 direction. Awesome. Anything to add, Dwayne? You're the, you're the Lomo man. Okay. He's the man. He knows the questions. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. I actually got a follow-up email from, uh, not from Laura, but someone else from the Lomographic Society. And I'm going to respond to that email. I'm going to send him a copy of the podcast. She gave a great interview. Yes. Yes. I will say, we're a little behind the times with Polaroid. Apparently, there's something called the Impossible Project. And apparently, Polaroid film is coming back. Someone's taking it over and going to be producing new film in 2010. Is this in the United States or abroad? I think it's abroad, but I thought maybe we'd uh, bone up on it for our next podcast and maybe uh, gather some information and discuss it next time. You know, We'll do a little research. Fantastic. Yeah. The whole homography thing, I think that uh, a lot of college-age kids out there are, uh, you know, sort of bunking the whole digital thing they're going the opposite way they're they're grabbing film cameras and they're shooting film and really loving film photography the kids yeah and it is i mean maybe it's a hipster thing maybe it's a, a you know a trendy thing mm-hmm. but you know what it's selling film it's kind of cool i think it's cool shooting film i really do if you were taking photography classes in either a high school or a college level or even majoring in it intending to be a photographer as a career and they never taught you film that's an entire you know 150 years worth of photography history that you don't really think you're a part of i mean you're disenfranchised from understanding those things so why wouldn't you want to pick up a film camera and at least try it there is uh, a lot to learn you know your foundation of of knowledge is is i mean mean, whether you are shooting a film or a digital slr all the principles are exactly the same and as a filmmaker joe i mean do, do you think that if people they're, they're educating themselves about filmmaking and they're an excuse they're exclusively using digital processes like you said you're the hdr guy is that what you said i mean don't you think that people wonder well what's it like to make a movie on film oh yeah of course yeah absolutely like when i when i started out they started you on film they mm-hmm. didn't you didn't start on digital immediately you started on film and you worked your way so it's literally like you went you went through the whole right uh, right lineage or whatever you want to call it then uh Dwayne, we moved on to the freestyle booth. Oh, my, my, I, like, I like freestyle. It's, uh, we spoke to Patrick Delabovi. Freestyle, for those of you who don't know, uh, is a company, I believe they're in California, in Hollywood, California. And they stock so many different types of film, most of it's black and white, if not all of it, and darkroom equipment, and in an era when people are scaling down their operations and offerings in uh, black and white fine art photography, these guys just keep it going strong. So they've always gotten... Uh, my support in terms of, uh, you know, spreading the word that they're a great place to go and they're great people to deal with in terms of getting uh, a lot of esoteric films from, uh, I don't know, behind the Iron Curtain. Yes. <laughs> if you're into film photography, I think you'll really love their site to buy some different types of films. We've stocks. got some great film for you. Come check it out, <laughs> Vlad. My but, friend Vlad makes it. Let's see what uh, Patrick had to say. Patrick, why don't you tell our listeners precisely what it is that Freestyle offers? Freestyle basically is very focused and very committed to black and white traditional photography. Uh, Our product selection, we've sort of gone out there across the world and secured up every film, paper, and chemical manufacturer when it comes to traditional side black and white photography. That's our focus. 
that's what we do, and that's what we're committed to doing. Now, you mentioned also that you do uh, you do schools and consumers as well. So, so how does that break down in terms of who you sell to? Well, we do we tackle many different segments. School is uh, one of our primary segments because obviously, photographic education is very important, and we believe in students learning photographic education by getting into the darkroom. Uh, we believe a true photographic education begins with the darkroom and doesn't necessarily have to end there. Obviously, most students and uh, people are going to go into commercial, the commercial side of the business. They're going to attack, tackle the digital side of the business. But we believe that if they start with that darkroom experience, uh, you know, the first thing a kid says or a student says when they get into that darkroom and they see that first print develop is it's magic. And that's what we believe in, the magic of photography. And we want to make sure that we keep the products into this country, bring them into this country and support them so that uh, these kids and these students and anybody that wants to get into photography still is able to experience that magic of photography. The thing that blows me away about the Freestyle Catalog, and you people have to get a copy of this thing because there's so many different kinds of film in it with Eastern Europe, mysterious Eastern European names. And people wonder, where do these films come from? How are they different from American films? Can I trust these films? You know, uh, so please talk a bit about that and tell people why they should buy them, why they should trust them. Definitely. You know, a lot of these Eastern European manufacturers have been around for a long time. It's just with, when you had the big three out there with Kodak and Agfa and Fuji, a lot of those Eastern European manufacturers never made it into this country. Well, obviously, several years ago, Agfa stopped making photographic products. Kodak stopped making black and white paper. So it sort of opened up the market and the opportunity for some of these smaller niche players to get into the marketplace. And what Freestyle did is we went out and we searched the world over and found everybody that makes film and everybody that makes paper and brought them in. And, you know, it's interesting, a lot of these companies They've been around for a hundred plus years. Really? And we've got companies like FOMA that uh, they're from the Czech Republic. They make a complete line of black and white papers, a complete line of photographic films, black and white photographic films. We've got uh, Photochemica that makes a paper, a couple of different papers called Barricon and Emox. They're from Croatia. Very silver rich, uh, really, really great quality papers. We also bring in another paper from Russia called Slavich. Again, another silver-rich paper. One of our newest papers, which uh, I would encourage everybody to take a look at, is called Adox. And that's out of Germany, manufactured by a company called Photo Impacts. A wonderful, wonderful paper. They make an uh, uh, RC-type paper. They've just come out with a fiber-based paper that's just beautiful. Everybody remembers Agfa Multi-Contrast. Classic. Very, very similar to that. Just a different base, a little bit wider of a base, but uh, beautiful quality papers. Do we stand behind these products coming from Eastern Europe? We absolutely do. Um, that's the one thing that a lot of people say is, well, what's the quality like? Some of these smaller manufacturers, you know, they're artisan. You're going to get variation from batch to batch. Somebody like in Ilford, you know, they've got millions and millions of dollars of equipment there. You're going to get consistency batch after batch, and that's good, but... You get into some of these artisan quality manufacturers, some of these manufacturers that, you know, they got the same equipment since 1940 or 1950 that they're producing products with today, still producing quality products. It's just you're going to get a little variation. But that's what makes them unique, and that's what makes them interesting. And that's what also, you know, from an artistic standpoint, that's what makes them fun to use and to try. So you're saying you should really look at that as an attribute rather than a detriment. Hey, you know, I'm getting a little bit of variation in it, but it's something maybe that I can incorporate into my, uh, my bag of tricks to produce something that's unique. 
Absolutely. You know, again, the fun of photography is experimenting and being able to get different image quality and different tones. And, and, and again, you know, the best way to do that is to play with it. One of the things Freestyle does to stand behind these products we bring in is we offer a 30-day no-risk guarantee, which says that you buy something from us, you try it, whether it's film, whether it's paper, whether it's chemicals, doesn't matter what it is, you use it, you don't like it for whatever reason, we'll give you your money back. No questions asked. Why? Because we got a lot of stuff that a lot of people aren't familiar with, and we want you to try it. We want you to play around. We want you to experiment. Again, that's what it's all about. Have fun and do it risk-free. You mentioned Holga. Who is it? What is it? Why are people talking about it? It's just this movement. It's this insane tidal wave of interest. People always, are, even at the show, they're talking about it. You guys, you guys handle this brand name, so please tell us what it is, why people should, should look into it. The Holga craze is on. And, you know, it's funny. Holga's used to be this little niche market, sort of this little cult following amongst photographic educators and students. And about, uh, oh, two, three years ago, it started gaining more and more popularity, and it's actually brimmed out over the photographic marketplace. Companies like Urban Outfitters got into carrying Holga cameras and carry a complete line of Holga products. And, you know, they've kind of brought it, I don't want to say mainstream, but they've sort of, you know, taken it up a couple of levels. In addition to that, if you look, five years ago, there were two Holga cameras out with flash and without flash, basic 120 camera. Today, there's over 25 different Holga models. You can buy a Holga stereo camera and pinhole. You can buy a Holga stereo standard. You can buy a, a wide panoramic pinhole Holga camera. You can buy a 35 millimeter Holga camera. There's a twin lens reflex Holga camera. Where are they made in Europe? Yeah, they all come out of China. And yep, the Holga, the Holga products are, uh, it, it's just grown into a complete category and a complete line. And there's a lot more coming down the pike. There's a lot of new things coming out. In addition to hold the camera, plastic cameras have also become very popular. Things like the Blackbird Fly. You've got uh, the Superheads line of cameras. And just, uh, you know, think of it this way. What's old is new again. Right, right. Retro, vintage, that's what's coming down the pike. But it's coming in plastic. And it's coming in, you know, a lot of times 120 format. Or 35 millimeter. 120, you feel 120 film is making a resurgence because of this? Yeah, 120 film is definitely... Uh, taking a tick up because of what's going on in the Holga, the, the world of Holga. So thank you so much for taking time to speak with us. And if people want to check out your catalog, where do they go? Who do they talk to? Under the website, www.freestylephoto.biz. Or we've got an 800 number. It's 800-292-6137. And uh, you can call and request a catalog or just go onto the website. And there's uh, an area on the website to request the catalog. We're also on Twitter, so you can go ahead and follow us on Twitter. And uh, just keep supporting black and white traditional photography because uh, that's what we're all about, and we're committed to it, and we're going to keep doing it. Patrick, thank you so much. That was great. That was great. Yeah, that was terrific. I was t I, I took uh, some pictures, which uh, we'll, we'll put up on our uh, Film Photography Podcast group on Flickr. I brought my Pentax Auto 110, that little 110 camera. What an awesome little camera. The single lens reflex. And it did get quite a lot of notice from people. What is that? People were following Mike. Mike has this. Uh, well, you'll see the photographs on the website, but but people were following Mike around. They were. He had a, like a group of people just. Well, they would look in amazement at it because it's such a, a slick yet compact little package. It's cute. You can it's hold it cute. in your hand. Right. You it's right in your hand. Like, what is that? And people were asking me, like at the uh, Lomo booth, where to, where people were asking me where to get 110 film processed. You were getting some play. Yes. And I told them that you could send it to Dwayne's, not Dwayne Polk. Not Polky, me. Dwayne's <clears throat> photo 
or you could send it to Clark Photo Labs, Clark Color Labs, rather. Uh, they still process 110 film. Because when you bring your 110 film to your local CVS, they just send it out. They just send it out, probably to Dwayne's. That is the wrap-up from the PDN Photo Plus International Conference and Expo. There are some people I wanted to speak with. I wanted to go to a Midwest Camera Exchange, MPEX. Midwest, Midwest Photo Exchange, not Camera Exchange. Because they offer a lot of, lot of used products in uh, all formats. But we didn't get a chance to go over there. So uh, if hopefully this podcast is in existence a Next year from year, now, yeah. we'll definitely get to talk to them. KEH Camera Brokers, too. I don't know if they were there or not. They, I think they were there. They were there, yes. Yeah. Was um, were any websites there, like mm. Flickr or Photo.net? Didn't see them. No. American F- American Photo was there, the magazine. American Photo magazine, okay. The Lomography Society is right over the river in New York City. Did, there was a, a gallery showing. Did you did you ma- make it there? I didn't. You did not go? No, I didn't. I was too busy scanning. Uh but um, as good as an excuse as any. I, I think Dwayne and I should go over the river and uh, talk to them a little bit more, see what's going on. They put gallery shows on in New York City, which is pretty awesome. Maybe we should go over there and actually have like another interview session with them. Yes. And see what their digs are like. Yeah. Maybe like every square foot of their office is covered with pictures. That would be really cool. Yes, it would be. They they had a gallery show. They invited us. We did not make it over there. No, we didn't. We didn't. I do want to wish uh, all of our listeners a uh, happy holiday season. Yes, indeed. So I want to thank everyone who has been supporting the Film Photography Podcast. And I really do appreciate you listening. Next time, we're going to look a little bit uh, deeper into the uh, group, check out some of the pictures, and make some more comments on some of the posts that folks have made on the uh, Film Photography Podcast Flickr group. Super. Flickr is an awesome, awesome place to be. Until January, I want to say happy holidays to everybody. Dwayne, thanks. You're welcome. Joe, I really appreciate you <laughs> dropping in. Uh, yeah, no, thank you. Thanks for having me here. Yeah. Uh, Bye, everybody. Special thanks to our webmaster, Greg Dumont and his KillerReviews.com website. Check it out, KillerReviews.com. It's a movie lover's site, B-movie lover's site. If you are into B-movies and movies, check out KillerReviews.com and Greg's podcast. And special thanks also to Alternative Cinema. And that's at AlternativeCinema.com. <laughs>